Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and Pride events have been canceled in Florida out of fear of hostility. We have a star-studded show today. California Congressman Eric Swalwell stops by to update us on the mess that is the U.S. Congress and talks to us about how the debt ceiling hostage situation is playing out. Then we'll talk to Nebraska State Senator Megan Hunt about the nonstop fuckery in Nebraska. But first, we have legendary Democratic strategist James Carville. Welcome to Fast Politics, James Carville. I don't know how fast I am, but let's <laughs> 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 <I> get <keep> going. <laughs> it's good. Made up debt ceiling bullshit. What should Biden do? First thing, you need to rinse your mouth out and don't call it debt ceiling. Call it default. Okay. Rule number one. To default or not to default? That's the question. Yeah. That is a better word. And, of course, she's being held hostage. Your communication has not been that good. It should, it should only talk about default or not default. It should talk about the fact that there is no such thing as a Republican budget. Joe Biden has submitted his budget. The Republicans have been in power since January the 3rd. No budget. Zero. The third thing that needs to be pointed out, according to David Jolly, former Republican Congressman from Florida, who's a kind of a budget scholar, the United States has been acquiring debt since 1789. 25% of that total debt was during the Trump administration. 25%. That, that's about 1.6% of the time in U.S. history. So you have to prepare people 
get our budget that all they want to do is just slash veterans, slash law enforcement, slash right. drug enforcement, slash education. And the communications coming out of that has not been very consistent and it's not been what I would consider repetitive enough. But we where we are and the following is probably gonna happen. It's gonna be a, a shitty deal from the vantage point of Democrats. You know, get to meet and say, look, what would be worse if, if we wreck this economy? So we're going to take the deal. Of course, there's going to be the requisite amount of somewhat appropriate bitching and screaming from mostly, but not all from, from the left of the Democratic Party. There'll be a, a lot of that going on. And we'll say, well, we ought to run on this in the next election. But it's going to be the choice between taking a pretty unfavorable compromise or negotiation or wrecking the economy because they will wreck the freaking economy if they do this. I mean, you need five sane Republicans. You have to talk to legislative people, but that takes a while. Right. You don't get up one morning and say we're going to have a discharge petition. What about like minting the coin or selling? You could try it, but the courts will probably knock it down. It'll look gimmicky. Most people don't even know. I mean, we try to say it's not debt that's already been acquired. You can say all of that, but it, it really doesn't break through the public. I mean, maybe we saw it coming, but we sure didn't prepare anybody for where we are now. The other thing, though, I don't know how much help it. They keep losing elections. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Yes, I have. They lose it in Florida. They lose in Virginia. They lose it in, in, in Pennsylvania. They lose it in Wisconsin. Yeah. They lose it in Colorado. I mean, name a place and they're losing. Yeah. So if you were in that administration right now, what would you do? What I would do, because it's what I know, I would do message discipline and message enforcement. They don't call people and say, you know, this is what you should be saying. And don't say that. And don't say debt limit, say default. You know, talk about how the president proposed a budget. They have no budget. There's nothing to negotiate with. And who are they to tell us about debt when they are you know, acquired a gazillion times more debt under, under Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. What's so interesting about the demands are they want to make the Trump tax cut permanent, but make sure there's a work requirement for SNAP. I mean, it's like just completely schizophrenic, right? It's never been about the deficit. The Trump tax cuts, it, uh, I saw Chuck Todd, I have to off the chart. said, just come on, man. You know, in reality, the Trump tax cuts did nothing but make rich people richer. They did been study after study after study. It was a giant waste of money. But it was good for stock buybacks, and that's about it. The problem is when you're this deep into it, and you knew from the beginning that they were going to not, that was going to be their, their negotiating position. No, no, no callback on the Trump tax cut. Right. We didn't prepare anybody for that. So now we're down to, you know, I don't know, drop dead date. Let's say it's Yellen's being a little panic. Maybe the drop dead date is June 6th. I don't know. But we're, we're just kind of starting to try to find some kind of message. You know? And the, the Trump tax cuts are not popular. At all. Nor should they be. No, and there's no reason for them to be. They gave all of the people who didn't need it more money, and they had zero effect on improving the economy. Trickle-down economics never works. I mean, that's what we see again and again. There's no longer an opinion. 
I mean, study after study after study after study. So what do you think about, I mean, we're in this Republican primary season. Everybody in the world is jumping into this not Trump lane. I mean, what, what do you think happens now? I always tell people, I'm really, I'm not very good at predicting things. But I thought it's going to happen clearly, I think, in the short term. Trump is in profound legal jeopardy. I mean, profound. And the least of his problems are uh, Alvin Bragg and Stormy Daniels. But, I mean, it was just jaw-dropping story today about that they're subpoenaing all these business records because they obviously have a suspicion that he took this classified information and was exchanging it for money. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, you know what? I mean, I went to law school and I'm much of a lawyer, but I have some idea of what it would take to get a federal judge to sign off on a subpoena of a lawyer's notes. Right. Right. That's, that, that's, so, so to get, to, to be kind of fundamental about it, to get a subpoena, you have to show probable cause to a judge. We think, you know, we, we got an information belief that this guy, you know, was stealing watches and we want to search his house to find the watches. Right. That's right. one standard. We want the crime fraud exception. We want to subpoena his lawyer. That's a much higher standard. You just can't go in there on information and belief. You have to have something pretty doggone substantial. It's clear to everybody that the Fulton County DA is going to indict his ass and a lot of other people. And the judge is going to chew him out today publicly about what he can say and not say. I mean, Trump doesn't care. He's never followed the law in his life. And he's always been able to game it. I think it's catching up with him. I really do. Even if it catches up with him, even if it catches right up to him, does it matter for the base? Well, it it certainly matters outside the base because they're losing elections left and right. Right. Is there a point where the base breaks? Well, maybe the base is 40 percent, but how much of that is hardcore? Maybe 28 percent. And the nightmare for the Republican Party is this, is that he loses something and it, it all gets fragmented and it goes to different people. And remember, the, the most important thing to remember, without predicting, but just you got to know the rules first. And the rep- Democratic rules, we have proportional representation. So if it's three people running and somebody, if it goes 40, 30, 30, well, you right. get 40 you know, you get four delegates out of every 10, the other two people get three. The Republicans are mostly winner take all. Because if you go 40, 30, 30, you get 100. So let's just say they have all these people running and, and Trump loses something, but he's still solidly high percentage of Republicans that vote for him. It's a nightmare for them. Yeah. And that seems like a very likely outcome, doesn't it? It, it certainly seems like one that you would consider, yes. Some of this stuff has some effect, but not the hardcore people. And the hardcore people are always going to be more excited than the people that say, man, enough of this guy. It's too much. You know, they might both, they might right. not. But the people that say that the deep state is surrounding him and blah, 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 you know, then you did something else. The Democrats are always pissing and moaning about our problems and you know, we can't put this together and this and that. And man, their problems are, oh, my God. 
And of course, the yeah. press is all gaga over Tim Scott because he's gaga over anything. Remains <laughs> to be seen where that goes. It's hard to imagine that you have Republicans voting, going from voting for a racist to voting for someone who is not white. Pretty hard out there. They hadn't like polling one percent. You know, we'll see where that goes. But I you mean, know, he's. Uh, you know, he's running as the happy warrior. Not for these Trump rallies. They don't look very happy to me. <laughs> There's a lot of anxiety in the pundit class about Biden. I mean, do you think it's silly? Where are you on that? First of all, the age is a legitimate issue. You just can't say that. Let's, let's pivot to the real issues here. Okay. You're making this up. And fundamentally, he's in not a, a very good position right now. Now, what they would say, I, I suspect I'm... 85% sure, as they say, look, James, you know, this economy, it takes a while for people to see what's going on to appreciate it. You know, Clinton got wiped out by the four. Obama got wiped out in 2010. By the way, we did much better than they did. Yeah. And attitudes are going to change here. And, and you know, all you nervous Nellies, you know, running around and talking about this and that, you, you, you just wait. The public's going to come to appreciate the job that he's done. And Trump needs Biden because that's the you know, only Democrat he could beat. And Biden needs Trump because that's the only Republican he could beat. And it's kind of weird in this way, but they're going to have to work around the age issue because he's not going to dissipate at all. It's a different issue when you're running against Trump than when you're running against DeSantis. Right. DeSantis is a, is a really unpleasant man. So. <laughs> Here's something I teach. And, and when you're in politics, you have enemies of necessity. Right. right. So somebody is the governor and you want to be the governor. Well, that's right. your that that's an enemy of necessity. Are you the governor and somebody wants to take your job away and you want to get reelected? So that's an enemy of necessity. Enemies of choice are entirely different. And DeSantis has poor judgment. So the key player in all of this is Susie Wiles. Interesting. I mean, I, I can't tell you how central she is. So Susie Wiles was Pat Summerall's famous football player. Right. And she was DeSantis's person. She she was a go-to person for order. She was his fundraiser. She was his, his everything. And Mrs. DeSantis, who's going to be erupt, is a much bigger issue. It just goes, oh, no, knocked her off. Well, she went to right. Lago. Now we're seeing stories about his use of jets and everything. And now there's a story with him texting Lev Parnas. Miss Casey DeSantis is having a headache because Miss Wilde is tap dancing on her head. And she's just getting started. Yes. And that's what we saw with the negative Casey DeSantis story the other day, too. Oh, they're coming left and right. And they're putting out, I'm not a fashionista at all, but Casey DeSantis' <laughs> clothes is not the clothes of somebody whose husband makes $175,000 a year. You can tell you, it's a lot more than that. But Miss Wilds is, uh, knows where to bury the body, and she's taking the people around right here, dig right here. To say the least, she's, she's very active. And, you know, Roger <laughs> Stone, they don't play by the markers or Queensberry rule or anything like that. I think <laughs> Casey and Ron have bought the wrath of God on them. You know, other thing, Molly, so how you, so I've been in a lot of campaigns and, you, you know, you're going for a little, now don't forget to talk about the ethanol subsidy here. Don't forget to talk about, you know, it's a big issue here with some environmental leakage or whatever. Right. So you tell her, you, right before you go, you say, don't forget to be human. 
Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> right. Remember in the, right. in the Roman times, they, they had a, always when the emperor was in the chariot, there's always a slave that was riding it with him, and he whispered, you're mortal, you're mortal, you're mortal. It, it goes right. to the wisdom of the ancient Romans. It, the sand's got to have somebody with him, like the it, it, advanced guy. You're, every now and then, you know, just put, you know, be human, be human. You know, like you go out to here, don't you know? You gotta, you gotta when you order the cheesesteak, don't don't order it but Swiss cheese, like like John Kerry. You gotta, right. <laughs> and you think ultimately that could be his undoing? He's kind of boxed himself. He looks ineffective vis-a-vis Disney. Right? right. It looks That's like he too. he picked the fight and he got bloodied up. That's a bad framework for him. And he's not, you know, one story doesn't knock anybody out. The finger pudding story, there's this <laughs> journalist of New York Magazine, Margaret Hartman. Okay. And she is obsessed in funny as shit about DeSantis. And you ought to have to get her on your show because she said no one could survive the pudding finger story. Which I, I, <laughs> you know, and, and of course, Trump got right on that. And right. I wouldn't be surprised if, if it was not Susie Wiles that leaked that story. I wouldn't be surprised at all. You really think Susie Wiles has ultimately been Trump's best kind of tool here? Yes. She, well, she's at more like where she works for Trump now. And yeah. in her mind, she made Ron and Casey Sanders. I mean, she, you know, the strategies put together the fundraising. I mean, she was a kind of, you know, matriarch of the Florida Republican Party. And Casey knocked her off, and that that was not a smart move. That, that was a poor enemy of choice. That's what I think. And I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know, Miss Wilson. Have no interest in getting downwind of her either. Right. I think that's probably a good call. I want to ask you one last question right now. What is keeping you up at night? Ooh. <laughs> Sorry. I, I mean. You know, that's defaulting. I don't think it's much of a chance, but uh, I, I worry 5% that there's some element of sanity left in the Republican Party, but less and less worried about that. It's so much talent in the Democratic Party, and that's something people don't understand. Up and down the ladder. And what keeps me up is no one gets to see that. Because I think if people saw how, how talented some of these people are, because we're, we're viewed right now by the public as a kind of old party, urban, you know, not particularly exciting, you know, generally kind of constipated and don't include a lot of America and what we see. I think that people, that if they get center stage, can show just how, how much talent there is in this party. And it's a lot. It's everywhere. And some of it, you know, potential presidential level, some of it, you know, four, eight years away. I mean, namely three more talented people in Westmore, Josh Shapiro, Andy Bashir. You can't. You just can't. Now, maybe a few years off. Look at look at our friend Ruben Geiger, a really talented political guy. I mean, very talented, very into it. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. Gretchen Whitmer's freaking superstar. I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention that Mississippi governor's race. I, I ran in, I was at Moscow's and I ran into the Mississippi Today, but Sparksdale, Walter Isaacson, the Mannings and stuff. And Walter, everybody's into this in, in, in the corruption. Because Mississippi, people don't think about it a lot. They just, they kind of dismiss it. But like, 
Tate Reeves' personal trainer got like $1.4 million in state money. There's so much corruption there, it's unbelievable. And Brandon is running hard against it. And I think we're in this thing. I really do. I really, really do. And that's going to make a difference to me because if he's governor, he's going to have a half million people. When he expands Medicaid, that's a half million people in the poorest state in the country. Have health insurance. James Carville, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back. I will. Thanks, Molly. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, right? Well, not so fast. What about your out-of-pocket costs? That can be a lot of money for you and your family. And if you're like me, you can't help but wonder, was I overbilled? You're not alone. It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? It's a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. HealthLock finds medical bill errors before you pay. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. 
LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Congressman Eric Swalwell represents California's 14th district. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Eric Swalwell. Hey, Molly. So excited to have you. So I want to talk to you about minting the coin and the debt ceiling. Can we mint a coin and we can give them, the Republicans, what they want. We'll give them a billion dollar coin that looks like Vladimir Putin. Yeah, put Donald Trump's hair on the coin. (laughs) Exactly, put Ivanka on the coin. (laughs) We should do whatever it takes to not see millions of people screwed out of their savings. I am in the camp that, you know, as I look at the 14th Amendment, as I look at the Constitution and and how does it make sense that we could authorize and spend money, but we have to go approve, you know, to increase what we can borrow that we've already authorized. So that to me, the the 14th Amendment is pretty plain that you, you can't, you know, essentially go back on that. So sure, should we negotiate with them to be, you know, as responsible as possible? with taxpayers' money? Yes, but Molly, you know what? We already have work requirements. They're asking for work requirements as if they're the first geniuses to ever come up with that. Those are already in place. You know, they want to see the debt come down. Well, the debt has come down faster under President Biden than it was certainly under Donald Trump, where it increased by nearly 40%. So, I mean, this just seems like a own the lid uh, exercise by them. And we're trying to figure out what it is exactly what they want. Yeah. I mean, it seems like when you look at the list of demands, they want to make the Trump tax cut permanent, but make sure to not cut defense spending because God forbid Raytheon shouldn't get its check cut. I mean, it just seems like sort of villain stuff. Right. And and by the way, on defense spending, nothing will bring down defense spending more than us being able to, again, rely on all the allies that Donald Trump alienated, right? Like, right. I mean, if you have more friends in the world, you don't have to spend as much on your own defense. So I, I actually think Joe Biden has a long-term policy through our alliances to do that. So again, it just, it, this just feels like these guys, they don't really understand what they're holding here and how volatile it is. And, and I think part of this is for me, many of my colleagues, like, this is like the first serious job they've ever had, right? That's kind of scary. <laughs> right, when right. I first got elected, I, I thought I was serving with a bunch of people who had turned down, you know, much better paying jobs to serve their country. Now, like we serve with a bunch of people who had made up a bunch of shit, you know, about their background to get here. And now they're like trusted with real responsibility and, and, and we're paying the price. And, and they talk about this, Molly, like, it's a government shutdown that you could just shut it down and then turn it back on. And government shutdowns are, are awful, but you can, you know, eventually reopen government. People still get hurt. You can't undefault. Like once you default, that is, you know, a, a permanent standing as far as your, your credit. They do not seem to understand it. But also, do you worry that McCarthy, even if he were operating in good faith, I mean, there's just supposition over supposition over, you know, even if he were operating in good faith, that he wouldn't be able to get the votes. There are a number of Republicans who are going to vote against this no matter what. They just don't want to help Biden. And Donald Trump at that town hall, he said, you know, that quiet part out loud, which is like, we should just default. Because 
he thinks Biden will be blamed for it, right? So he, in his, you know, naked thirst for power, he sees this as like a default hurts Biden and it helps him. And, and so he's cheering, you know, from the sidelines for a default. And, and then he gives them this weird permission structure where he says, you know, we're going to do it anyway. Right. You know, we might as well default because we're going to do it uh, anyway. And, and so I, I think you've got just a, a class of Republican colleagues who want to see that happen. The real question that's raised here is whether McCarthy could bring a vote up, lose 20 to 30 Republicans, pass it with Democratic support. And, and would those 20 to 30 who vote against it, would their next move be you know, to try and depose McCarthy as speaker? And I think that is what he's thinking of um, more than anything. I want to ask you about the discharge petition. I mean, I've asked other people about this. I mean, is it just there's no time for a discharge petition or do you think that's a real possibility? If Janet Yellen is correct, we don't have the time to go around. This would be you know, late June, early July vote at the earliest. And by the way, like we've seen before, you know, the way you count congressional days, you can play around with that by not like ending a day session and like fading it into the next day. So McCarthy really didn't want to do this. He's got, you know, the means to do that. Look, I, I, if I have any criticism or complaint, it's just that we're not telling Americans more clearly what this is. And, and what this is, is that Americans pay their bills. Uh, when you rack up a tab at the end of the night, when it comes due, you pay your tab. When you have agreed, you know, and received a benefit from spending or, or future spending, you agree to handle it. This is America's tab. And, and as I said, a good chunk of it is Trump's tab. And so Republicans pay Trump's tab and, and not dine and ditch on the American economy. And, and I, I think we have gotten into, you know, government speak. Uh, about, you know, let's just raise a clean debt ceiling. And that doesn't mean shit to anybody. Like no one has any idea what that means when you say, you know, we should raise a clean debt ceiling or we're going to use a discharge petition like that. That means nothing to, to most Americans. You know, we pay our bills. You know, Trump spent a lot of money to help billionaires. And now the bill has come. And if we don't pay our bills, you're going to pay for it and the job that you're going to lose, the savings that's going to tank and the economy around you that will suffer. Like, like we need to make it, I think, more personal uh, rather than talking about good government and what we've done in the past. Like, again, the fact that we raised the debt ceiling three times under Trump, that doesn't mean anything to people. We, we need to make it more personal. I want to ask you about this FBI January 6th tranche of communications that just were uncovered. Clearly, a lot went wrong on January 6th, for which a lot of lower level people have been jailed. But there has not been any kind of accountability up the chain. Do you think that any of this will lead to that? Or do you think that this is just not how we do justice in this country anymore? Well, look, I, I'm really concerned about the FBI agents who attended the rally, right? And then ultimately would have their security clearances, you know, revoked. And, and I'm concerned that, you know, Republicans are holding them up as, you know, quote unquote, whistleblowers. And, and by the way, they wouldn't give a single whistleblower protection to anybody in the Trump administration. Remember, they wanted to out the right. whistleblowers. They wanted to dox the whistleblowers. And, and, and now they're, you know, heralding these people as whistleblowers. And, and so that part concerns me. But I, I have to say, when it comes to January 6th, I don't want to blame the victims 
too much here. You know, I don't I don't want to blame the police. I don't want to blame the FBI. Like Donald Trump told us, I think it was on December 19 in that 2 a.m. tweet that January 6 will be wild. And then he fired all these people up. And, you know, we had thousands of police officers, you know, around the Capitol and Donald Trump failed to invoke the National Guard. He wanted his rioters, his supporters, you know, to be able to get around weapon screens. I mean, I put this almost entirely on Donald Trump um, because this was his FBI at the time. I mean, they, they could only go as far as, you know, the permissions they would get from his attorney general, uh, who at that time was all in for Trump. So I do think, of course, like the Capitol will look different, you know, for future January 6th certifications. But I want to be careful not to let Donald Trump off the hook in any way. I mean, this was entirely of his doing and, and the doing of the people who enabled him and did nothing to stop him. Yeah. I mean, do you think, though, that there's more coming? I mean, what is your sense? You've been, you know, part of this investigation congressionally. You know, you have a lot of insight here. I mean, do you think there's more coming? We have our own suit against uh, Donald Trump and we're waiting for a court of appeals decision that is imminent. If it goes our way, uh, we expect to be in depositions and discovery very soon. And uh, we actually would be uh, in our suit. We would be able to get more information, I think, than anybody else because we are I'm bringing this in my personal capacity. And because I'm doing it that way, many of the privileges Trump and his team have stood on to prevent people from getting information, whether it's Congress or other suits, he would not be able to use because I'm I'm bringing it in my personal capacity. And and so many of the privileges would go away. And and so I, I do think this, you know, in addition to ultimately holding him accountable, this will be another thread stream of information about what Donald Trump did and didn't do on January 6th. But again, I I just think, Molly, sometimes it's our nature as a CSI, NCIS consuming society to believe that like the reveal comes, you know, in the last episode of the season. Right. But actually, I think with Donald Trump, he kind of starts where he's going to end. He's told us exactly what he's going to do. And then then he's done it. and, And we keep thinking we need like some sort of you know, reveal or smoking gun, but like he's never hidden from it. And so we're just conditioned to think that like there's more. And I, I think we had enough when he sent that tweet that it will be wild and, and then just stoked it from there. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting, like when you see the kind of like E. Jean's case, which is such a great example of like just a person being defamed, being able to hold Trump responsible for the defamation, that there are creative ways or not even creative, but, you know, that you may have to take a more circuitous route to hold Trump accountable. And and what I like about Eugene is, you know, she is continuing to play on his side of the field. Right. She's like, okay, you want to keep talking shit? Great. See you back in court. It's going to cost you more money. And that's the only way the guy is going to learn. As I said, is you just have to play on his side of the field and you have to set the rules and the terms and not let him do it. Otherwise, you get the town hall that we saw a couple weeks ago. I'm wondering now that we're in this hot campaign season again, you and I both, I feel like, have had this experience of being just taken a lot of like death threats and just a lot of really scary stuff from Republicans. As it gets hot again, are you anxious? I mean, like, do you think that Trump has that kind of rhetoric or do you think, I mean, what, what's your take? 
Yeah, he is Amazon Prime for death threats, right? He yeah. puts them uh, in your inbox uh, or on your doorstep pretty quickly. You know, he'll say something, it'll fire up his supporters. I, and, and we, in just the last you know week, uh, have been back to peak death threats, uh, and they're parodying Trump, McCarthy, uh, you know, what we saw from Tucker Carlson's uh, rhetoric in the past. And, and actually, I think you're going to see as he starts to feel the heat from other candidates in the primary, they'll get him too, right? I mean, because right. his, his, his followers are not, they're not partisan at all. It, you know, right. it, it's very much cult-like. And, and so uh, they'll be aimed at Republican colleagues. And, and Molly, it's just what frustrates me is that the best way, and Jonathan Greenblatt from the Anti-Defamation League told me this a couple of years ago in a congressional hearing, that when threats and extremism are denounced by both parties, it sends a message to people from those groups that there's not a green light to do it. And he said the silence also sends a message that uh, your silence uh, is almost permission. And, and so I always think about like, wh what if we you know, saw more unity as an antidote to this violent landscape that we live in? But, you know, Jerry Connolly, my colleague from Virginia, yeah. you know, two of his staffers were attacked last week. I, I worry a lot about family and staff because they sit on what I call the X. You know, they sit on the target. They're, they're, they don't move around like uh, my colleagues and I and, and other elected officials. We're just always on the move. That's the nature of the job. But your family uh, and your staff are the ones who are just sitting ducks uh, in the first place that, you know, someone who wants to carry out these threats will go. But here at the end of the day, for because of the, the threats are also designed to deter you from speaking up or deter you from participating in democracy. And what I hope your listeners understand is we are winning. <laughs> we right. are beating these guys every single time from 18 to now, with the exception of just narrowly losing the house. We have one or beat expectations. We just won in Jacksonville, right? We, we just, in a Republican state, you know, we beat a MAGA candidate. Uh, we just won in Wisconsin, you know, on the Supreme Court. Uh, so in on years, off years, we're turning out. And, and so I, what I hope we don't see is just an exasperation or intimidation uh, because, you know, violent rhetoric is really the only play that MAGA nation knows how to run. And, and so, they're also, they recognize how effective we are at turnout now, right? So what are they attacking? They're attacking early voting and young people voting, right? Like right. now you're starting to see this movement to increase the voting, voting age. Voting to 26. are voting, yeah. So I, I yeah. When, when they start to go there, that tells me we're doing it right. And, and we just, we have to see this election, I think, as our best chance to really bury the MAGA movement, that we, we've got a real shot because they're on a losing streak. And I think if we don't give up, we can see this extremism extinguished. Yeah, let's hope. So if we survive this Republican created debt ceiling debacle and we, you know, move into the summer, what is the sort of thing that's keeping you up at night? These guys, I think, have to do three things over the next two years, Republicans. They have to pay our bills so that we all don't suffer. We have to keep the government functioning and, and open this fall, and we have to keep Ukraine in the fight. And I really worry about the third because of Donald Trump's town hall, he said, oh, one, he would not condemn Putin as a war criminal, and he also said that 
he'll solve this in 24 hours when he's president. Well, if you're Vladimir Putin and you hear that, what you're thinking is, well, I can stay in this fight for 18 more months. I can wait for Donald Trump to give me a better deal than I'm going to get from Biden and NATO. So I think when Donald Trump said that, we just bought 18 more months of carnage, you know, on the battlefield in Ukraine. And by the way, 18 more months from a leader in Vladimir Putin who has run an interference play before against America's democracy. And so I, you better believe he has a preferred candidate. He has a candidate who says, wait till I'm president and I'll solve this. He has a candidate who's receptive to Russian interference. And, and so we better be ready for that and call it out a hell of a lot faster than we did when it happened in 2016. Yeah. Thank you so much, Eric Swalwell. My pleasure. Thanks, Molly. Hi, it's Molly. And I am wildly excited that for the first time, Fast Politics, the show you're listening to right now, is going to have merch for sale. Over at shop.fastpoliticspod.com, you can now buy shirts, hats, hoodies, and tote bags with our incredible designs. We've heard your cries to spread the word about our podcast and get a tote bag with my adorable Leo, the rescue puppy on it. And now you can grab this merchandise only at shop.fastpoliticspod.com. Thanks for your support. Megan Hunt is a state senator from the great state of Nebraska. Welcome to Fast Politics, Nebraska State Senator Megan Hunt. Hi, Molly. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to have you. The thing we talk a lot about here, but sometimes we don't get people who are actually like living and doing in red states. We talk a lot about what you're faced with every day. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how you ended up in the state Senate in Nebraska. Oh my God. Well, I feel like I never meant for any of this to happen. So like, that's going to be the title of my <laughs> memoir. I don't know how I got here, but, um, you know, my background is really in entrepreneurship and activism. I've been a business owner in my district for about 20 years. I ran a little clothing store, like a boutique for about 10 years. And right now I own a stationary store and that's just like my background. And, you know, I'm just a mom in the neighborhood. And in 2015, I got really activated with a group of people who wanted to update our sex education curriculum in our public schools. At the time, um, our county had some of the highest rates of STDs and STIs in the entire country. And our sex education curriculum hadn't been updated since 1971. So since then, we've had the internet and the AIDS epidemic and an increasingly out LGBTQ population and all the mental health challenges that go with that community. And we just knew that in order to fix this stuff, we had to make sure that kids were getting age-appropriate, medically accurate, research-based education. And long story short, we did it. And it was in a red state, in a red community against a lot of odds. And it was really, really hard. And I kind of got bitten by the policy bug. Like, I organized so many people to get that done. And I started to realize that people were seeing me maybe as a political leader, not just as a business leader. So I was like, well, I feel responsible. I feel like I have to try this. And in 2018, I was elected by a landslide. I just got reelected by a landslide. And now I'm just here <laughs> trying to do something. <laughs> 
Explain to me what your district is like and what it looks like and what the problems of your district are. Sure. My district is very diverse. It's one of the most densely populated parts of the state in Midtown Omaha, which is sort of our population center here in Nebraska. It's very progressive. It has a lot of college students. It has a lot of families. We have a lot of neighborhoods. We also have two kind of prominent business districts. So if you want to in Omaha, if you want to go out for a drink or go to a theater or go to a good restaurant, you're probably coming to my district. So it's that part of the town. And the issues that matter most to my constituents, the top three things are access to health care. You know, we just recently finally expanded Medicaid, which is hard to do in a red state. And we got that done. Support for public education, whether that's our universities or our K-12 schools. And then the third thing that people really care about is decreasing the partisanship that we have rising in our state and local politics. That's one of the top things people talk to me about at the doors when I campaign is, you know, they don't really relate to or respond to the hyper-partisan rhetoric that we hear coming from federal politics. And in state and local politics where you can like actually know the people who you're voting for, you know, these are our friends, our neighbors, our community members. And we have seen a lot of that partisan division infecting our state and local politics for the first time in Nebraska. I know that in a lot of states like Texas and Florida and Missouri and Arkansas, like it's just, it's always been this way. Like it's always been hyper-partisan. It's always been winner take all. But in Nebraska, we have a really strong tradition of libertarianism and nonpartisanship and kind of these, you know, hardworking Midwestern values are not just conservative values. But all of that has really changed a lot in the last eight or 10 years just because of, you know, billionaires putting their money into our political system to help themselves. And how has it changed, Megan? Well, I think that we have fewer people who are running for office who are motivated by a real problem. You know, I never wanted to run for office. I never saw this being in my future. Like I said, like 10 years ago, I started caring a lot about sex education in public schools. And then that just led me down this rabbit hole of like, okay, now I'm a state senator. But it was that issue that motivated me to start working on these things that led me into the political arena. For most of my colleagues, and I say most, like more than 50%, they are not issue motivated. They are not motivated by experience. They are motivated because somebody wealthy came to them and said, if you run in this district, I will give you a blank check and make sure that you win. And then these people get elected. They don't have any passion for this job. They don't know what they're voting for. They don't have any motivation to do this work other than they were installed here by somebody who made it worth their time. And that's, you know, citizens and people should know that that's what's happening in politics. And it's a mess. It's terrible. It's funny because as you're saying this, I'm thinking about this no labels trying to get the Democratic senator Manchin to run for president, basically, you know, making him a promise that he would. Again, this is supposition. We don't know that this is for sure true. But I want to ask you, so you're seeing this sort of astroturfed legislators coming in. Yes, completely. And they're not so committed to their own values. They're largely committed to the values of the sort of Koch brothers or the types of billionaire donors. Yeah, I hate to sound like ad busters, like this leftist freak, but it's like, (laughs) yeah, it's just the literal ruling class. 
they have figured out that they can install who ends up running things and that gives them all the influence that they could ever want. We also have this thing in Nebraska. And I know this is like very Nebraska. Like, I don't want this to be boring to other listeners, but. No, I think it's not boring. I think we're really interested in what. Well, we have this other new problem where in the legislature, if somebody resigns or dies or leaves office somehow, we don't have a special election. They aren't appointed by the city council or anything like that. They're appointed by the governor. And so. We've had a succession of billionaire governors, billionaire conservative Republican governors like Pete Ricketts, and he sets up senators with a plush job so that they retire early and then he gets to pick their replacement. And then that person he picks gets an incumbency advantage for the next election. And so another thing I think we need to do here is put in place some special elections so that, you know, right now, nearly 10 percent of our legislature in Nebraska is populated by senators who were appointed, who were never elected. And I mean, what the fuck? (laughs) Right, right, right. That seems kind of nuts. I don't think people know that in Nebraska. I think we just have a dearth of knowledge. I want you to talk to us about if you feel comfortable talking about what you faced as a parent in your state with their anti-LGBTQ legislation. This has been, Molly, the most depressing session for me. I mean, all the stuff I just told you about, like the political process and stuff and how messed up it is, that has always been true since I got elected. But we still knew each other as colleagues. Like we have the only nonpartisan legislature in the country. And we also have the smallest legislature in the country with just 49 members. And so we really know each other. Like I've been to these people's houses They've come on trips with me to conferences. They've babysat my kid. They know me. They know that I'm not a bad parent. And, you know, yesterday at the signing ceremony for LB 574, which is the bill to ban health care for trans kids, Governor Pillen said he said something like he can't think of anything that's more pro Lucifer. He used the word Lucifer talking about these parents who are trying to get gender affirming care for their kids saying that that they're basically in the grips of the devil. And how can all of my colleagues who know me and my son stand behind him when he signs this bill and says these things? Like, I really think eight, 10 years ago in Nebraska, this would have been unthinkable. This guy would have been laughed out of the state. And now this is mainstream politics. And it's so depressing to me, like to say nothing about how this affects my son, how this affects me as a single parent, what this sends to other parents in Nebraska or, you know, people who love trans people at all or have them in their lives. Just the process has degraded. It sucks. I have three teenagers and and I relate so much to this. Isn't it hard to have a teenager? It's so hard and they suffer so much. And, you know, and I know that if one of them had wanted or needed gender affirming care, you know, I would not you know, I would be in the same position that you are. So when I listen to you talk as a mom in a red state, I mean, you know, you do what your kid needs for them. And if that means, you know, that they feel they were born into the wrong body, that's what you do. And I just, you know, I so feel for you. You just get them the care they need. I mean, if your kid has a broken arm, if they have a cough, if they have diabetes, if they have any kind of medical issue at all, if they're sad, like 
You try to get the care they need. And raising a teenager in the best of circumstances is very, very hard. And so it is literally just trying to keep these kids alive. (laughs) You know, my eldest son had a kid in his class. I mean, we have seen so much suicide in these teenagers. We're living in this world where these teenagers are, you know, so fragile and you just want to do for them. And the fact that Republicans have decided that this, that these kids who are suffering so much are their enemy is just beyond. Yes. And it's completely reminiscent of what the queer community has gone through forever. But I mean, In the 70s and 80s and 90s, we started to see more gay representation in the media. We started to see people being out in the community and that became more acceptable to people. It was like, you know, maybe I don't understand being homosexual, but my aunt's friend is a homosexual and I met her and she was really nice. And, you know, it's just the exposure. But we don't really have that in the trans community. And so they're doing the same tired old playbook that they did with the gay community in the 70s and 80s to trans children in the trans community now because they are the ones who are most vulnerable. They don't have the visibility. They don't have the lobby. They don't have the political power. Protection. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a fucked up thing. So how are you going on where you live? How are you surviving? Well, I feel like, you know, I just try to really step back and take a macro look at how the world really is. I mean, life is short. The world is big. The love that we have for each other in community and the support that we have for each other is nothing, is so much greater than any of my colleagues could ever understand and so much greater than anything any law could do to us. And this is what we have to remember. Like, you know, maybe my future is not going to be in Nebraska. I don't know. Maybe my future is not going to be in this country. If these laws keep getting more discriminatory, maybe at some point I'll say, you know what, world, I did my best for this place and I have to prioritize the health of my family now and move somewhere else. We'll see. But I just try not to lose sight that the world is not as mean and bad as red state lawmakers make it seem. And the world is not red states in the United States. Like, I know that when you're under persecution, when you're being targeted by these lawmakers, that's your whole world. I understand how it is to be oppressed and marginalized. And that does become your whole world. And I feel that way a lot, too. But I just try to remember to pan out and remember that this is all temporary. One of the things I'm struck by is that these are not red states, right? These are red states with enormous blue cities of people who cannot afford to move their whole lives, right? I mean, and it's not fair to ask them to because they are as much citizens of the state as anyone. Tell me about what is happening in your state, what we're seeing more and more. And, you know, I interviewed someone today who was talking about this is that none of this is popular, right? I mean, it's not like most people who don't watch Fox News do not give a shit about what gender people want to be. They don't care. This is not effective. You know, it's effective in a very small group of very angry people. So I'm curious to know, do you feel that there's a groundswell where you are? Do you see a pushback? And uh, maybe you can relate this to what happened with Roe. Yes, I do. Absolutely. I mean, 
what happened in Nebraska last week when we passed LB 574, which is a ban that it's a bill that bans health care for trans kids, but then they amended an abortion ban into it. And that <laughs> is course. all the you need that fight for bodily autonomy is affecting us all. It's not that abortion is just a women's issue. It's not that trans rights is just a trans issue. All of these things speak to each other in terms of the autonomy and the control that we get to have over our own bodies and our own families. And these are extremely unpopular policies. In Nebraska, we've been filibustering the legislature for 13 weeks just to make it hurt, just to make our colleagues understand that when you come for our rights, it's not going to be fun or easy for you. Even if you win, it's going to hurt so much and be so excruciating that you hate single day you're at work. And, you know, when they have the votes to get their way, they're going to get their way. But we are not letting them get away with anything else. And that Nebraskans don't like that. I mean, they see what's happening in the legislature and they go, OK, conservatives, we want tax cuts and we want lower property taxes and we want a better football team. Like, can you guys just, you know, stop discriminating against people so we can get back to work? Right. <laughs> That's how most Nebraskans feel. So, I am eager for this upcoming election season. We are ready to turn people out. We are ready to recruit candidates and we are ready to change this state by just flipping a couple seats to someone who's fucking normal. It doesn't even have to be like liberal hero. It's like, does someone's fucking Republican dad just want to come in here and say, I don't hate gay people? Like, that's all. <laughs> I should laugh. That's normal. Normal. I mean, that's the truth. I mean, that's the thing is always when I talk to these like never Trump conservatives, I'm like, you know, you guys weren't that great, but like you'd be great now. And I mean, you know, they're gay. They're normal. They're just whatever. They just don't hate people. Um, Well, they do hate people, but not quite the same way. I remember when I thought Mitt Romney being president would be like the worst thing to ever happen to this country. Um, I'm just like longing for those days. I think about that, by the way, all the time. I think about like I, I get into this, but but I want to ask you one last question. You are no longer a Democrat. Will you explain to us uh, what you did there and and why you did it? Yeah. So we have a so I left the Democratic Party in, I guess, like mid April. So a little over a month ago. And the reason is we have attracted a lot of national attention in Nebraska for the way we have been fighting against these anti-family, anti-woman, anti-gay bigoted bills that Republicans have introduced and Democrats on the national level started fundraising off of it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh because it's so fucked up, but it is very fucked up. Let me tell you why it's fucked up. Yeah. The Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, the, the National Democratic Party has never invested a penny in Democratic candidate in the Nebraska legislature because they write us off. They don't think they can win. That's not an exaggeration. We've gotten zero dollars and zero cents from national. Now we're their favorite. Now they think <laughs> we're the best. And I'm just sick of it. And for that matter, I also don't like going on MSNBC or whatever. Like now they all want to have us on. And then they're like, oh, this Democratic angel is right. taking out the Republican trash. And it's like, don't use my name for this binary, like they're good, we're bad type of rhetoric. Because in Nebraska, we have a nonpartisan legislature and I'm very proud of that. And I'm very protective of that tradition. 
Now, if I lived in California or New York or Illinois or Iowa or South Dakota or anywhere else, it would not be productive to my goals to leave the Democratic Party. Right. Because of the situation we have in Nebraska, I can be a progressive independent and achieve more than I could if I was tied to a party. So that is my goal. Yeah. Fuck yeah, man. That's what we're doing here. I appreciate you so much. I am just in awe of your courage. And also, more importantly, you're doing the real work out there in the red states. And like, you know, I just want you to know that I am. I really respect you. Molly, thank you so much. I think you're so cool. And I'm so excited we got to talk. I've been following you on Twitter for years and years. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jungfast, we've long known and heard that this Ron DeSantis fellow would be running against Trump, but it seems like it's about to come tomorrow. I mean, what I love about this is that it is so online. It's like, I don't even know. It's like this presidential GOP primary is going to completely exist on Twitter. Elon Musk, perhaps you know him from not from being just a centrist, except he's <laughs> like a full on fascist. But whatever. Uh, that guy, he has been a big, big Ron DeSantis fan because Ron DeSantis does Trumpism without the flair. And now he is going to help Ron DeSantis or as we like to call him, Florida's favorite fascist, <laughs> announce his presidential run. But let me just say this one thing. In a normal world where America was sliding into fascism, Donald Trump would say, okay, this guy's a much better hope for bringing fascism to America. I will go and stay in Palm Beach and play golf. But this is not a normal world. This is Trump world. And so expect the stupidest presidential primary, as stupid as you imagine it to be, this will be 10 million times stupider. Okay, the pudding finger story, this is just the beginning of the stupid. The stupid you will absorb and be subjected to will be so stupid that we will need <laughs> we'll need to read so many books to recover even a single brain cell. And for that, <laughs> Ron DeSantis and Elon Musk fighting on Twitter with Eric and Junior is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. 
For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider.